Welcome to Ahead of the Game, a podcast brought to you by the Digital Marketing Institute. I'm your host, Will Francis, and this episode is our annual end-of-year special in which we hear about next year's emerging trends in digital marketing, thanks to our recent trends webinar and other experts that I've spoken to. You'll hear from Alison Battersby, a social media trainer and consultant who will tell us what to keep an eye on in social, Nikki Lamb, an SEO veteran working with Neil Patel Digital who's got some advice for adapting to Google's new AI-powered search experience, Carl Malin, a PPC specialist with some tips on Google Ads in the next year, Brian Corish, who's an expert in AI and what's to come there, Morgan Cummins, a recruiter and coach with some insight into the job market in our industry, and Ken Fitzpatrick, the CEO of the DMI, will close out with his predictions for 2024. Okay, so first of all, let's hear from Alison Battersby, founder of Avocado Social and a regular here at the DMI with her social media insights. Here's what Alison sees coming in social in 2024. And just a note that since recording, Threads has now launched in Europe. Well, I definitely think 2024 is going to be the year for Threads. And I, for one, am very excited about it. I think it is a really great opportunity for anyone who's feeling a little bit bored or sick of X. Let's call it Twitter. (laughs) They have provided a fantastic alternative platform, which is really conversation-led and... There's a lot of brands having so much fun on there. It almost harks back to early days Twitter where you can just pose questions, have discussions, even just share a bit of banter. And you don't need fancy videography or huge carousels of photos in order to get traction. You just need a good topic and a great tone of voice. So I think Threads is a really interesting one. The meta team are going to be putting a lot of effort into making it a success. I don't think it's going to be one of those platforms like Clubhouse or Be Real that sort of appears and then disappears again. They're committed to making sure it works. So the EU situation is one of the reasons why it hasn't taken the world by storm at the moment. The Wall Street Journal's reporting it could be launched in the EU as early as this month, December. So we shall see. The feeling about X at the moment, amongst many of the brands I'm working with, is that it's a dangerous place to be. It's not being properly moderated. There are so many bots and bits of fake news on the platform. And it's been reported that over 100 big advertisers have committed to leaving the platform and will not be spending any advertising revenue with X, which means that X is going to struggle to develop any new features and to me just doesn't seem like a viable social media app to continue on if you are looking to represent yourself in a respectable manner. So what advice are you giving to brands who are thinking of leaving X? First of all, have a look at your stats. There are obviously some areas that are continuing to thrive, like sports and breaking news. But I would have a look and see how many impressions your tweets are tending to get on the average. Um, I've personally found that my tweets or X posts weren't being seen by more than 20, 30 people. So it was definitely time to retire the account. I haven't deleted it though. What I've done is put it on hold 
I've pinned a message to the top asking people to come and follow me over on threads, which I've seen quite a few other people do. And I think it's quite a a cheeky way of driving traffic over to your brand new profile on threads. Okay. So what else is coming? Well, LinkedIn have just announced that they've hit a billion users, which is pretty cool for what was always known as the boring professional social network. They're actually the oldest social media platform of those front runners. They've been on the market since 2003 and they have seen a huge amount of engagement since COVID. In fact, year on year, they announced that they are doubling engagement, which seems pretty crazy. But now when I log into LinkedIn, I see so many more posts around kind of lifestyle and more posts around just general life lessons rather than just, oh, my work anniversary or I've got a promotion. So I think as users in a post-pandemic world, we're turning to LinkedIn more to connect with our wider network in ways which aren't specifically work-focused. We're looking to perhaps share key lessons and learnings, to educate people, spread awareness. I think LinkedIn is a really exciting place to be because you can do a lot more with the platform and the audience generally is more engaged than ever before. But on LinkedIn, it seems that it's personal profiles that really work, that really get traction, really get seen in the feed. Not so much company content, right? You're absolutely right. Personal profiles do seem to get priority in the platform, particularly if you've switched to a creator mode. And if I were a company utilizing LinkedIn, I would recommend using some of the newer features. So things like newsletter articles, can actually drive quite a lot of engagement and awareness for longer style articles you might be writing, or you could use those newsletters as a roundup of a different variety of content formats you're producing. I would definitely be considering though your employee approach to LinkedIn, who from your C-suite, your leadership team has visibility on the platform, Just generally, does everybody's profiles look credible? Do you need to tidy anything up? Are you offering branded profile pictures and cover images for your employees to utilize? And then training as well, getting your employees just aware of the impact they can make from both a recruitment point of view or just generally to help your business boost its visibility. Um, Once you get everybody more involved and maybe even offer incentives, then as a whole, you can make a much bigger impact sometimes than what your company page can do by itself. Great. So what's next? So the third trend, I would definitely be a fool not to mention AI. AI in social media is currently mainly being used for production, I would say, Social media managers now have a huge suite of tools for content brainstorming, content production. We're talking caption writing, hashtag research, image generation. I think we're going to see a huge rise in in in-platform AI next year. And already the main social media tools are releasing AI features We've seen things like AI-generated stickers on Instagram. We've just seen TikTok offer an AI-customized feed 
where you can tell TikTok what kind of things you want to see and what you don't want to see. And it will change your FYP, your For You page, depending on that. LinkedIn is beginning to feed content ideas to its premium users and also job potential physicians as well. So it's feeding out jobs that you might be interested in to premium users based on AI that's reading your profile and reading what kind of things you're engaged in at the moment. So we're going to see a lot more platform AI next year. So rather than turning to tools like ChatGPT or Midjourney, social media managers will be able to do that kind of thing without even leaving Instagram or leaving Facebook. And I really like what someone said to me recently, a good bit of AI is a piece of AI that you don't even realize was AI. You think you're just using the platform as normal. So I think we'll see more of that from the social platforms themselves. Well, I mean, AI's just being integrated into absolutely everything at the moment, isn't it? And I guess it'll probably just settle into being part of the fabric of all platforms and apps that we use. Like all new technology, it starts out very conspicuous and it, it slowly sort of like fades into the background and just becomes an integral part of stuff and things and systems, right? Definitely. I mean, that does bring about many issues like concerns around whether you need to be stating something has been AI generated and almost owning up to, you know, we did use AI to create this image. I'm pretty sure the social media platforms will begin to almost offer a label or a tagline where you can say this was created using AI, because I think ethically that will be required, particularly in in a world of you know, privacy issues and misinformation and imposters. So what's next? Next year, I think we're going to see more brands fighting for user attention. Attention is the most valuable commodity online in social media right now. And, you know, once you've engaged someone, you've got their attention, how do you retain that? And so we're beginning to see platforms like Instagram release retention rate graphs in their Reels analytics. Also, we're going to see more brands create more playful content that entertains audience with a view to keeping them watching for longer periods of time. TikTok Mm. has just announced 15-minute long videos. So once you've engaged someone, and, you know, engagement rate used to be the metric we were all chasing, how do you now retain them? and keep them engaged for longer periods of time. Well, yeah, that retention, that video watching time in minutes and hours is and always has been the best indicator of how good content is, far better than plays or views. Yeah, I mean, views isn't a level playing field anyway because Meta counts, what, three seconds? Whereas YouTube is Mm. 15 or, or is it half the video But if it's less than 15 seconds, the user needs to have watched the whole thing to count as a view. So it's not even a level metric to be able to compare like for like. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what brands do with longer short form videos. I mean, did you did you watch that 10 minute Hilton video on TikTok? The 10 minute Hilton ad. So when they launched 10 minute videos back at the beginning of this year, it was Hilton that was the first brand to do it. 
And they did it pretty well, to be honest. I mean, I, I've got to admit, I didn't make it through 10 minutes. I don't think many did. But the way they presented it was sort of, you know, we're going to have a really fun 10 minutes together. We, we've got giveaways. We've got exclusives. Paris Hilton's mm. here. Paris Hilton's presenting some of it. There's comedy sketches. So they'd really, you know, put everything into this 10-minute video and it's had crazy amounts of views. I think like 80 million plus views. But then I don't know right. how many people re were retained, how many people made it to the end. Yeah. <laughs> Who will be the first 15 minutes, I wonder? Thanks, Alison. Right, okay. Well, next up is Nikki Lamb to tell us all about Google's new SGE, Search Generative Experience which is an AI assistant within Google's search results pages that compiles information for searchers using generative AI. It's currently being rolled out around the world, and Nikki, who is Senior Director of SEO at Neil Patel Digital, is going to give us some tips for preparing for what is almost certainly a huge development in SEO. Nikki. Thank you so much, Will. And that was a great segue into SGE, which is Google's um, AI-powered new search. Google's documentation on SGE says that they have to corroborate their AI snapshot data with reliable sources. Now, I know there's been a lot of talk about backlinks, you know, dying off and um, interviews with Google employees, you know, have uncovered that they're not a top three ranking factor. However, they will continue to be a signal of popularity to Google, especially knowing that um, corroborating their AI snapshots with sources across the web was mentioned in their SGE documentation. So um, one thing that I highly recommend that you think about is how can I start creating content that's worth talking about and linking to? And I know Allison just mentioned in her uh, presentation that there's going to be an influx of content. Now that anyone can just hop into um, AI tools like ChatGPT, other tools out there, and spin up robust content with a prompt, your success is going to be tied to whether or not you can create content that's much better than that AI-generated content. So a few different ways to be thinking about doing that are to leverage some type of proprietary and unique data, data that AI and other brands don't have. Also, tie your content into things that are timely and buzzworthy um, as a way to make them a little bit more interesting and linkable. And overall, you should be thinking about how to make your content better than what exists now. One mistake I see so many brands making is they do competitive research and then they put their effort into just essentially replicating what's already out there. But what's um, concerning about that is that doesn't mean that your content is linkable and shareable. So be thinking about how you can go above and beyond you, what your competitors are doing. Now, my second tip is about leveraging this EEAT framework. If you're not familiar with this, Google has released an EAT framework for, I think, over a decade now, which stands for Expertise, Authority, and Trust. This year, they added a second E, which stands for experience. Now, experience is going to be huge because that's something that AI can't generate is firsthand experience. So as you're developing your content strategy, be thinking about how to weave in proof that the writer or whoever's running the website has expertise, firsthand experience, 
um, authority and trust, that they deserve to be listened to. And this is critically important, not only because Google has recently added this new E, which shows that there's a continued emphasis on this framework, but their SGE documentation also states that they hold SGE to an even higher standard when it comes to delivering information that is critically important. So demonstrating expertise, um, authority, trust, and experience in your content strategy is going to be super important. Some quick ways that you can think about doing this, but I highly recommend you take the time to sit down and, and give more thought to it is by including author bios. Um, make sure that the people writing the content are experts in their field and that you're educating your website visitors on who these experts are. Um, other signals can be on-site reviews um, and stuff like that. So again, lean into this EEAT framework to make sure that your content and your website are demonstrating these four pillars for Google and your users. Now, my third tip is to cover your topics thoroughly. If you want to be seen by an authority in your topic, by the users that are you know, coming across your brand and by Google, you need to make sure that you're answering all of the questions that have to do with your industry. Think about it this way. If you personally were going to renovate your home and you found a contractor and in speaking with them, they were answering all of your questions about cabinets and countertops. But what if you started asking them about flooring and paint and drywall and they stared at you blankly? You probably would want to find a new contractor to do your home renovation, right? Well, think about that as you're thinking about your own website content strategy. Even if the topics that are relevant to your industry are longer tail and have less search volume, you still need to be there for your users that are searching that. And another thing to consider is that with this new conversation mode um, that's a part of SGE, and as Google continues to provide um, strong answers to even the most complex searches, there will be a trend of your head term starting to decrease in search volume as people start to increase the amount of long tail complicated searches that they're doing. So cover your topics thoroughly and don't forget to hone in on the long tail searches relevant to your audience. And another thing you shouldn't be forgetting about is all of the content formats that AI hasn't quite nailed yet. Do I think that in the future, AI can produce high quality video content? Probably, but we are absolutely not there yet. And Google is surfacing videos and high quality imagery directly in the SGE carousel. Playable videos are going to be a really important part of your content strategy. And think about it this way. If you leverage tools like Ubersuggest or vidIQ, you can find keywords that have sometimes 10 to 20 even more search volume on YouTube than they do on Google search. So not only if you create these videos, you know, leveraging an organic keyword strategy, are you potentially going to get more space within Google's SGE carousel? But if you're selecting keywords that even have even higher search volume on YouTube, you're giving yourself an opportunity to be found by tons more people that are spending time on YouTube. And we all know that video consumption is at an all-time high. So again, leverage content formats that AI hasn't nailed yet to set your content apart. 
And my last tip for today is to optimize your conversion rate and your on-site user experience. Google always makes changes that affect your ability to capture people directly in the SERP with clicks. That's out of your control. You have no control over all of the changes that are probably coming with Google search in 2024. What's in your control is what happens when a user actually does decide to visit your website. So you can't afford to have slow page speed, poor user experience. You want to make sure that for every user that actually visits your site, you are absolutely maximizing your chance at converting them. Now, big brands like Walmart and Mozilla Firefox, they found that when they improved their page speed by just a second or two, that had significant uh, impacts on their ability to convert users. I think when Mozilla shaved a second or two off their load speeds, they were able to improve their conversions for Firefox by like 14%. So that's just goes to show you that small tweaks to your user experience, your page speed, um, you know, focusing on your conversion rates can have a really big payoff. So again, SGE and what's to come with Google very much out of your control. So control what's in your control. Thanks, Nikki. Great advice to all content marketers out there. Next up, we have Carl Malin, who is a regular here at the DMI. Carl is a commercial analyst, PPC and e-commerce specialist. Carl, you're going to give us a heads up on what's coming in Google Ads in 2024 and how to deal with that. What have you got to tell us about that? In all honesty, what's going to happen in 2024 is that Google is going to roll out AI. It's going to roll out the AI into Google Ads. It's dramatically important that we are skeptical of this. It can be helpful, but we need to be skeptical of this because unlike uh, some of the other uh, aspects of Google, like Google Ads is Google's moneymaker. And it is going to build, using design engineering, certain biases into things like algorithms and the layouts of Google Ads itself. It will build bias into how it communicates with you via reps and via emails and via all of the different things that Google does because it suits the organization to put everything under the umbrella of AI, which will be helpful, but it will also, you know, like limit your control on visibility, limit your control on the performance. Moving towards this black box technology of algorithms and AI, and it can do all these wonderful things AI can do. And we're going to have AI assistants helping us build campaigns. But Google is engineering these AI assistants to build our campaigns in certain ways. Sometimes it will work. Sometimes it will not work. Either way, Google gets paid. So it's important to remember this. Now, if we take a look at what kind of happened in 2023, 2022, uh, so with the rollout of things like Pmax, the performance max campaigns, we can see metrics for performance max on a campaign level, cost, impressions, conversions, all of that stuff. When you go one level down in performance max, you come to the next level, which is not ad groups, it's asset, it's, it's asset groups. So asset groups are the ad group equivalent for performance max. It's where your keyword signals, your remarketing audience audiences, your landing pages, your assets, your, your videos, all those different things are set. There are no metrics whatsoever on an asset level, on, a, uh, on, on an asset group level. None. You cannot. So if you've got one, one performance max campaign 
with four asset groups. You do not know which asset group is performing the best. You do not see the metrics. It's all under the umbrella of Performance Max is an AI-driven campaign and we'll do the work for you. However, we do not know what how that algorithm is built. We didn't build the algorithm and we do not know what biases are built into that algorithm. So you may have seen anyone who's been running campaigns on target CPA or maximized conversions over the past year, CPCs that are ridiculously high, like CPCs of like 20, 40, 50, 70, $80, huge CPCs for one click. You know, this is the AI's inherent bias showing because it's trying to get you your, it's trying to get you your objective. Um, but what it's doing is it's over amplifying the, um, the biases built into the algorithm that suit Google, which look, Google is great. It is an absolutely fantastic tool, but we just need to remain skeptical of things we can't see. Great. Thanks, Carl. Well, we will keep an eye on all of that. That's great advice. Talking of AI, our next guest, Brian Corish, is founder of Elemental, an AI-focused consultancy that helps companies create exponential growth through AI strategy. Brian, tell us what you're seeing coming in your domain of artificial intelligence. Yeah, Con made a good point about being healthily skeptical around AI, but this is very much the year of hype around AI. If you look at the NASDAQ at the moment, 49% of the entire value of the NASDAQ and 25% of the uh, entire US stock market consists of just six companies and they're all AI companies. So they, there's definitely inherent bias in how they're creating those things. So AI is already automating every part of marketing from planning and brief marketing, brief writing, market news. Uh, creative development is really interesting because if you look at Midjourney and you look at Dali, um, those platforms were, were were fun, but a bit clunky six months ago. They weren't particularly useful for real content generation at scale, and certainly not programmatic content generation. But they've moved on massively. Um, execution management, the idea of the marketing manager, you've seen companies like HubSpot now investing quite heavily in AI, making a number of acquisitions in that space, uh, and companies moving into the automated management of campaigns. Uh, and right down to optimization and learning. One of the things to, to note about certainly LLMs is they're really bad at maths. So I wouldn't be using them for much in terms of predictive analytics, but they are with pla- with plugins like Wolfram Alpha, they're getting better. Uh, and Claude 2 is far, far better than ChatGPT if you're using it for those those sort of tools. But my own company is is beginning to automate all of these parts. So what we're what you will see with these systems is they'll start to move from singular use cases to what's called hierarchical planning. So these systems will go from give it an output to it will generate everything end to end. As Kyle said, there's definitely going to be bias in those platforms, but they are improving at, a, at an exponential rate. One of the examples being uh, content creation. And we were just, uh, I think Nikki was just talking about video. And an example of that is a company called Pika.ai released last week. So platforms like this are going to get increasingly powerful. If you think that this is just version one uh, of that platform, uh, version two would be better and better. And when you think about the engagement of video content, the ability to go from type to video, the effect it's going to have on production budgets within two to three years will be massive. Because again, these platforms will get exponentially more capable. Um, The ability uh, to do personalization at scale has always been a content velocity issue rather than a targeting issue. And now we 
the platforms are getting to a point where we will be able to do massive amounts of content at scale. The other thing it will change is how consumers expect to interface with us or how we expect to interface with the world. So we have, for the last number of years, had searching for information. That was switched from searching for information to expecting answers. So uh, the idea of browsing through websites, looking for the content that you are uh, th th that you're trying to find versus just asking a conversational interface. You would start as a conversational interface has been around for a very long time, but what they've always been a little bit clunky because of the data they were built on. Increasingly, you're going to start to see web design move toward conversational interfaces because consumer tolerance for browsing will reduce. So if you think about that within your business, um, AI strategy within your business is there's sort of three simple elements is generating a clear AI strategy for your business. If your business is online and you do not have an AI strategy, I could be a betting person and say that business will not exist in five years. It, you need a clear process for greenlighting projects based on return on investment. Otherwise, particularly in large organizations, it can become a bit of the wild west. Everybody can be running off with different, prop, different uh, platforms doing different things. The challenges, particularly with generative platforms, is they all generate different answers. Um, and then you really need a disciplined kind of managing pilots at a team level, at a division level, at a company level. At a company level, is probably the bigger projects, but at a team level, is more of a test and learn approach. And the great thing about marketing, and I think there's a huge opportunity in marketing, is in most organizations that I've seen, and I've seen it a lot in the last few years, there isn't a head of AI yet. And there's kind of a bit of confusion about what to do with AI. So with marketing being closest to the consumer, there's an opportunity for marketing to really be proactive and push forward with that strategy. And if you think about AI strategy, you really need to figure out uh, what type of company you're working in and what the ambition for change is and what the resistance to change is, and then figure out your models. So there's three models really is optimizing, which is making your internal processes more efficient. So whether that's using ChatGPT to write briefs or to help write briefs or, or using uh, content generation platforms for for uh, for marketing copy, that's kind of the basic stuff around optimize. Accelerate is how could you use AI to make your existing products or services better? And the metrics that you could use there would be metrics around, well, could would this add enough customer value that we could increase the price of the product? You don't need to, but that's a, it's a good metric to start to make sure that you're you're delivering actual customer value. Transform is could you use AI to create a new product or a service or a business model? You see companies like TripAdvisor doing this, um, whereas TripAdvisor are have have created a, a basically an AI assistant that plans your and books your your travel for you. Now, that's a transformative business model. But if you work in somewhere like a bank and you try to, because I've worked in one, you try to go to a transform model straight away, chances are you're going to be blocked. You're going to get people trying to to stop you because it's a little bit scary. So really, you have to realize where is your organization. And also, you have to realize what type of organization. If your organization, if 80% of the tasks are browser-based in your organization, there's a good chance that a lot of those things will be automated pretty soon. So choose your strategy uh, based on the, on the organization. You identify and prioritize AI projects. This is a great opportunity to go around the organization and not have a conversation about AI have a conversation about what are the problems that people in the organization are facing that could be solved with AI. And you can brainstorm those things and then plot them out on what's the fastest one to get return versus investment. Uh, what are the kind of the ones that have high ROI but could take a while before we can really get a prototype and get to get to feedback. Um, 
And then most importantly of all of it is getting buy-in in the organization. So ideally find a champion or someone senior in the organization, that could be you, who will help you, uh, will, will sort of be the champion for this in the organization, will help you get traction in the organization. And the easiest way is to have conversations with those people about, doesn't need to be about the technology, it's about, well, how can I uh, help you? What are the core problems that you have in your business? And AI can probably help with solving some of those problems for them. So just focusing on generative AI, obviously there's lots of others. When you're kind of brainstorming ideas and use cases, there's sort of five uh, potential ways that you can use it. Generating text code images or video, processing or synthesizing code and images or video, um, or generating ideas. Actually, there's a, a there's a, currently people are talking about AI can't be creative. The statistics would show that that's not the case. Um, AI with combined with humans will increase human creativity pretty drastically. There was a, I think it was NYU Stern brought a uh, survey recently where there were uh, creatives given 15 minutes to come up with ideas and they came up with five ideas in 15 minutes. Creatives using AI platforms came up with 200 ideas in 15 minutes. And when they tested the efficacy of the ideas, the ideas were better when they were generated with AI. So it's a great, it's not great on, in and of itself, but it is very useful for generating ideas if you're uh, prompting it properly. If you look at AI for interacting with users, how can you use it to improve customer experience? How can you move toward conversational interfaces? Uh, and when you're using AI to complete tasks, it's just it's some of it, it's fantastic. It's some of this stuff that just takes stuff off your desk. Um, but personally, much more than at work, you think about an AI strategy for you. So where is AI going? Well, the models are currently getting exponentially more powerful. Based on the current trajectory, the LLMs that we are using today will be 10,000 times more powerful than they are today in three years' time. So AI is the worst it will ever be right now. So how will that affect us? Well, what will happen is knowledge will become democratized. The ability for anyone to have access to an assistant with an IQ of 170 to 190 will be everywhere. And it'll be democratized and easy. So the things that we have to focus on are, well, how do we look at reasoning? How do we develop those reasoning uh, skills? Because that's what AI sucks at currently. And how do we look at um, our soft skills? How do we navigate an organization to get things done? Because that's, that's, that's what's going to be much more important in the next two to three years. And how do we co-create with AI? So AI is not going to take your job. Someone who knows AI will, though. Thanks, Brian. Really interesting to hear your take on it and an optimistic view overall, I think, as it's definitely us in marketing who have the opportunity to lead on and leverage the benefits of AI. So lots of questions came in from our webinar audience. Firstly, Alison, with threads, do we just port over our existing X strategy or do you think it's something different? I do think it's something different. And I suppose it depends how old your X strategy is, because at yeah. the moment, um, you don't really want to be spending too much effort on threads trying to just use it to direct traffic to an external website. That's not its purpose. It's not what it's intended for. It's very much about in-platform conversations and threads and discussions that people can get involved in 
within the platform without needing to exit at all. So it's very different to perhaps how you've been approaching X recently. Um, I think at the moment, I, I actually heard someone from Meta speaking at a conference last week who was saying the brands who are seeing the most success at the moment on threads, brands like TED Talks, brands like Canva, the um, graphic design tool, um, also brands like Channel 4 here in the UK, so a real mixture, They're, they are seeing success because they are approaching it in a very conversational way, asking questions, posing discussions, and that seems to be what the users of Threads want right now. So I would be approaching it differently. Do your research, have a look and see how other brands are utilizing it so far. Try a few things out, you know, why not? This is the time to experiment with the platform and just really get to grips with it. But at a minimum, I would recommend at least having some presence on there, even if it's just grabbing a username, because I yes. we will see... Uh, a big increase in users in 2024. Certainly as the EU joins, there'll be that fresh excitement amongst potentially millions of people, right, to to join it. There'll be that initial sort of surge. Yes, absolutely, and a big spike. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, X will be over. I think it will just evolve into something perhaps slightly more niche. I agree. More refined next year, but... We shall see. I'm also very excited to see how they're going to lure the advertisers back. So whether we'll see some interesting new ad capabilities on X perhaps as well. Nikki, how will SGE affect click-through rates from search engine results pages, do you think? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's really tough at this point to measure because there are no definitive tools out there, of course, because SGE is still in beta. However, there have been some industry studies on search engine land that have estimated anywhere, I believe the range is somewhere between um, like a 16 to 68 percent decrease in clicks. Um, so it's it's definitely a scary thing. If everyone remembers when Google first launched the featured snippet, you know, the quick answer box at the top of the yep. SERP. That did cause, um, you know, that first position went from getting, you know, I want to say 36 to maybe somewhere around 20 something percent of clicks, right, depending on which study you read. So um, certainly there's an anticipation that because Google is able to aggregate data from all across the web, give users a better answer, some people will be satisfied with that answer and just will not need to click. So um, you know, we have been at NP Digital talking to our clients about the possibility of clicks, you know, substantially dropping off for sure. Uh, what are you telling website owners? I mean, is it worth showing up on a SERP even if you don't get a click? Absolutely. And I think that's going to have to become something um, that as marketers, we start looking more into and helping to, um, you know, change the narrative around the value of of your brand being seen. With that said, you know, when the featured snippet rolled out, depending on the query and what the user was looking for and, you know, what was going on in the SERP, I've seen even some of my own clients see massive increases in traffic when they implemented a strategy to specifically capture featured snippets or quick answers. So, you know, depending on the query, a user might get what they need from that quick snippet or they might click through to read more. 
Um, so I think, you know, with everything in SEO, we don't want to be doing anything just based on gut or what we feel or think, you know, you want to use data. Um, right now, of course, it's really hard because there's not much data available to, you know, be proactively monitoring when you're appearing in an AI snapshot or not. Um, but once it fully rolls out and we've got the tools to start truly analyzing, it'll be critically important to let the data tell the story. Yes, we really need that data in Search Console, right? Yes, I, you know, I don't think Google is going to give us a Search Console um, data point specifically for it, only because we've seen, you know, it's not like they did for the featured snippet. Hopefully I'm wrong. It would be really nice if they did, um, but we'll have to wait and see. Cahal, in light of what you told us about, is PPC advertising going to be more or less about just driving those conversions, do you think? This is the thing, is conversions are what we're interested in. CPCs is what Google is interested in. And it's about understanding that. So I like, I mean, the smart bidding does work. It does work, but it occasionally goes haywire as well. So what I find is, and this might relate to what could be, what, what could be, uh, what, what they're asking there. Um, when my CPCs go crazy, I turn it from um, maximized conversions or target CPA to maximize clicks because the, it, and I'll see it, if I see one really big CPC, I'll immediately switch it, switch the bid strategy because for the rest of that day, you're going to get CPCs of 50 and 60 or 70, $70. But if you put it to maximize clicks, it'll bring your CPC right down. So, but the idea is that it's a higher quality of click. But it can blow your budget. And yeah. if you're if you're paying, so the thing is, like, you could blow your budget with about five clicks. If your page is good enough, it'll convert it if the algorithm, like, what we're saying is my page is not good enough, only the algorithm knows. But you should have faith in your page to say, I'm just going to drive as much traffic as I possibly can to that page, given that I've put my ads together well. I have chosen my keywords well, I've added my negative keywords together, that my goal should be to get as many people onto the site. And for whatever reason today, Google is opt over-optimizing my campaigns and charging me $65. I've just found like flip it onto max clicks, at least for the day, the rest of that day. But it does yeah. mean that you have to dip into it. Because like, I, I jump in like the other day, I had a campaign on a budget of $40, $40 a day. And one click cost me 39. And I was like, well, that campaign's over now. And what do you think about Performance Max, which is obviously that very algorithmically driven, automated type of campaign in Google Ads? It's definitely good, but it you need to focus it. And there's only a couple of ways to focus it. One is the assets that you choose. And yeah. the other is things like URL expansion. Um, the only thing we can actually control are the assets and the budget. Um, but Performance Max does work well. I typically use it for shopping campaigns. And when I'm doing it for shopping campaigns, I'll create an asset group that only has the product feed. And if I want to create a Performance Max that has that has um, images and videos and all these other GDN features, which Google will just lash out everywhere and spend your budget on showing videos to like my, my nephew and my niece. So actually don't give it loads of stuff. Don't give it loads of stuff. If you like, if you want to have a performance max campaign that has different assets in it, like videos and images, create a separate campaign called performance max all assets with a budget of $20 a day. And then create a one with a shopping feed only with a budget of $20 per day. 
Because yeah. if you put them both in the same campaign with a budget of $40 per day, it'll all go into YouTube ads. Thanks, Carl. Good practical advice there. Brian, there are lots of questions about the ethical side of AI, of course. What are you telling your clients who ask about the ethical dimension of that technology? So relying on, on large corporations to have a moral compass has never worked. <laughs> so, uh, and relying on governments to be able to govern uh, those platforms has never worked either. So uh, I think the, the you're starting to see it a bit in X actually, right? The only, and as, as marketers, we've kind of got a bit more uh, sway here is where you put your budgets. It, it has, has an effect, right? So if you look at, but the actual platforms themselves being able to go, being able to govern the platforms, I don't think governance is going to be able to move quickly enough. Um, and we, we look, we've seen this story before. I'm, I'm a bit old and a bit, uh, cranky about this stuff sometimes, but you see the tech companies have done this for a while. Oh yeah. We welcome regulation. We welcome, you know, regulate us while simultaneously spending more than big oil does on lobbying to make sure they're not regulated. Right. So if there's lots of money to be made, um, I think ethics are going to be a bit sketchy. So. I, yeah, I don't have a simple answer to say, oh, we can fix it. Uh, it it's going to be hugely challenging, but I don't I don't know the short the, the answer of how you solve that problem. Alison, threads again, let's talk about that. So if it isn't about driving traffic to your website, what's the point? What's the value of it? Is it about brand recognition, building trust, building authority? All of the above. <laughs> I yeah. definitely think brand awareness and recognition is such a big one uh, particularly at the moment there's you know a good opportunity to create some hype around your business by being one of the leading brands on threads yeah. um to begin with um how but, how would you report on that just out of interest um it's tricky at the moment they are literally just rolling out analytics yeah. so that's like two weeks in the making and as with everything with threads it's all a bit of a test at the moment but you can see impressions or you will be able to see impressions fairly soon so that's useful because then you'll be able to do a like-for-like comparison with other platforms you can obviously see that open engagement that uh, public engagement replies um, likes shares etc so there is you know some element of success you can measure there as well um, but yeah, I think no, notoriety is definitely a good one with these newer social media platforms that have emerged. And whenever you can be, you know, one of the first, um, I think that that can help. But as with anything, you know, you'll want to think about your social media strategy, whether you have an audience there, which is very hard to know at the moment, which is why, you know, putting a few messages out there as a bit of a test could be a good experiment. And also, you'll want to understand a bit more about how much resource this is going to take because as social media managers, we're all busy, right? We've already got our platforms that we're prioritizing content for. How many more can we possibly run? Well, it's you know going to be bespoke for every single organization and business uh, around the world as to how much resource you can put aside to experimenting with new platforms. And with the social algorithms de-ranking posts without bound links in, which we know is increasingly happening, should we be thinking of social media as more than just a free way to drive traffic? Definitely. 
Yeah. And, you know, you look at platforms like Instagram, which is one of the most successful platforms, you know, in the world at the moment. And they don't actually allow you to put a bio, uh, sorry, a URL link within a post. And they probably won't ever change that other than story stickers or a link in your biography. But generally on a real caption or on a post caption, you can't send traffic externally, which I think is uh, actually a great way of trying to retain some of that engagement within the app. Yeah, I suppose it's about getting those stakeholders to just understand that awareness and engagement are actually business assets in themselves, right? You know, it's not just about click through to the website. Yeah, I mean, some of my favorite social media campaigns I've seen this year are really campaigns that have maybe involved UGC, you know, Mm. things that haven't necessarily been brand conceptions where they've thought, let's think about driving traffic to our website. It's been a fantastic video that's cropped up on TikTok, like the Stanley Cup uh, car fire video. For anyone that has missed that, do Google it. But that scene, sales of the Stanley Cup go through the roof. Thanks, Alison. Nikki, now you mentioned... E-E-A-T. And most of us are pretty clear on the expertise and the authority bit and the experience as well, right? It's about having a good website experience. It's about showing your expertise through content um, and about building authority through things like backlinks mostly. But what about that T, trust? How is that trust assessed by Google? Oh, man, there's probably a million factors that can differ depending on, um, you know, your website, who you're trying to reach. But some of the basics, right, are having an about us page. You know, people want to know, is this a reputable business? Let me know about this company. How long have you been in business? Um, Having reviews um, on site, right, so people can understand um, how people like your product and your service, um, even simple things like seeing responses to those reviews. You know, if people are having a bad interaction, are you going to respond? If people say that they are trying to make a return, but, you know, something's been messed up and they can't contact you, are you jumping on that right away to say, hey, here's how you contact us? Um, so, you know, and, and a lot of these EEAT factors blend together. Um, what I'd recommend to do in something that we do at NP Digital is we sit down and we make an entire checklist of all of the EEAT signals that we know matter for our business um, or our client's business. And then we grid that out kind of like a scorecard. Look at what your competitors are doing. How are they building trust? How are they demonstrating that they are authorities in the subject? Um, And then grade yourself against all of the things you see your competitors doing. And just think about the most trustworthy, reputable brands that you, you know, purchased from or shop with or read news on um, personally. How do they have your trust? Um, And pull all of that into a scorecard so that you can kind of start to figure out um, where can I improve here? Yeah, but what are the actual trust signals that we can make sure are in place so that Google sees them? I mean... Some of the things I just mentioned, right, they they kind of blend together. But yeah. um, if you are producing content, are you going out and sourcing experts in the field to write that content? Or are you writing a blog post about, um, you know, the best national parks to visit in the United States, but you've never been to them? Um, you're not going to have trust from your from your readers if that's the case. So it's 
um, making sure that you have experience to speak to what you're speaking to, that the authors that are named on your website are legitimate people, um, that they've got credentials and experience and expertise. Um, you know, those reviews are a big thing, having an ability to um, contact um, the company, the About Us page, all of those signals go into building trust with your users. And what are you telling people about using AI tools like ChatGPT and Claude to create content with the aim of ranking in Google? Is that a bad idea or, or is it okay? Um, I think I share a similar stance to what's been discussed here today. Absolutely use it. If you are not leveraging AI to speed up your processes, to do things more efficiently, you're going to fall behind. With that said, it is critically important from a content perspective that the human touch and element remains a part of the process. Think about it this way. If you're shaving off, you know, say 25% of the time, maybe even more, that it takes you to ideate a piece of content, that it takes you to produce an outline or at least a rough draft, take that time and that um, unspent time you have Put that into improving the content, helping it stand apart. You know, one of the things I talked about is to perform well in this AI, you know, search um, SGE experience that Google's rolling out. You need to stand apart. Everyone is going to be creating more content than ever um, with this wide adoption of ChatGPT, Claude, other AI tools. So it's what you do with that save time. Put it back into that piece of content. Maybe think about what type of video you want to include on the page. Maybe you want to go use that extra time to connect with people in the industry and source some expert quotes from them. Um, so that's going to be really important. Don't just create content with AI um, and then and then post it. And one last thought on that. Google has updated their own documentation that used to say that they prioritize content written by users for users. It now just says content for users, right? So we know that they're, they've come out and said, like, they're not penalizing people for leveraging content created by, by AI. In fact, if you do some Google searching, you'll see there are some even like large financial, you know, I'm talking YMYL, your money, your life brands out there leveraging AI successfully, but they want you to be transparent about it. And of course, again, that human touch always necessary. Thanks, Nikki. Carl, back to you. We hear stories of Google ad clicks sometimes costing astronomical fees. I mean, like, you know, $120 or something like that. Uh, any tips on putting further guardrails around cost per click and also around other things that get decided, you know, on your behalf, like keyword matching, things like that? I think it's, it's a really hard one because sometimes you wake up in the morning and then, yeah, you have 120 euro CPC. Like, the, the key is, when that happens, because th there's no way of stopping it happening the first time, but at least you can stop it happening again. So when it happens the first time, I always turn my campaign to max clicks because then I'll just get a bunch of, a bunch of like, you, you know, the, like the reason you're getting huge CPCs is the yeah. algorithm does not know how to optimize towards your goal. And it's just like, right, well, I'm just going to get one. Kick a I see, yeah. And then yeah. low, it'll spend as much as it possibly can to tick yeah. that box. I, I, like, 
if we have faith in algorithms, we should have more faith in the, our ability to have created a good page, put, put keywords together and put, you know, good campaigns together. So put it on max clicks and then give it a couple of days on max clicks. If you get over that 15 conversions in 30 days, you can maybe put it on, put it on max conversions with a, with a target CPA. Yeah. But there's no way of stopping it happening the first time it's. How to what about keyword matching? Is that another guardrail, or do you think just leave that? What broad phrase exact? It is. it is so. Like the the challenge is again with with phrase and exact match is that they're being bullied out of the way by broad match because that's what Google wants. Um, so they're so, so tight that you then struggle to get through. Too your tight, like you know, and the, and the algorithms won't work. Yeah. Um, it's it's really just don't make the mistake twice. Because what I've learned from all the AI and all the algorithm-based stuff is it's not going to do what you all want always. But when it messes up, don't go, right, well, it'll be grand tomorrow. It probably won't. Thanks, Carl. Brian, back to AI. Do you think there's anything that AI can't or indeed won't ever be able to do? Uh, will never, I'm not sure. But it but can, can't uh, reason. It doesn't understand context. It doesn't yeah. understand. It doesn't have our ability to 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 reason. It doesn't really have soft skills, and it's going to be a long time before it figures those things out. Uh, never, I'm not sure. Um, never, but, but, uh, but yeah, but for but for now, I think that's the. If there was one piece of advice, because I'm I'm mildly terrified because I have young children of like, what are they going to do in in 10, 15 years time when they go into a workforce? That AI is going to be that powerful, but. It's the be more human, and that sounds a little vague. But what I, I mean is, our soft skills, our ability to to understand context. It's it's a machine, and it doesn't it doesn't have emotions. So these the, these conversations about AGI are actually they're they're very distracting. I mean, we're we're miles away from AGI. But uh, I mean, if that's a short the short answer, long answer to a short question was yeah reason have soft skills understand emotions not very good at that yeah those things are hugely important in the workplace right massively important yeah interesting i think i agree with you there allison this lengthening of tiktok videos let's talk about that which i mean it seems like it might be a play for youtube's audience certainly trying to bring some of that audience across and also i think bring some of those creators uh from youtube across to tiktok now, do you think that that changes the need for videos, and particularly paid ad videos, to always be short? Or do you think there's room for longer content? That's a great question. Thank you for that. I think in ads, we will continue to see shorter form content work best hmm. um, because you know, you're, you're fighting for attention and it can be very hard to retain someone's attention in an advert unless it is like, you know, really really unique and playful. So I don't think that will change in 2024. I think we'll continue to see sort of, you know, less than 10 second, less than 15 second ads working well. I do think we will begin to see um, more businesses experiment with longer form content. I think one of the big trends for me that I've noted this year was more generation uh, Z users um, Engaging with film and TV via TikTok. I've seen that. Um, yeah, there are a few instances of 
long form films, cinema films being released via TikTok in chunks. Yeah. So that's something that Paramount have been doing. Also, there's been, you know, new viewers of older television programs like Friends. Yeah. You know, new audiences, um, you know, starting to explore it via TikTok. So I think that's something to keep an eye on for sure. And, you know, I don't think it will dramatically change overnight, but it could certainly be a new trend that is happening kind of, you know, throughout the year next year. Okay, great stuff. Thanks for that. Right, well, one more question for each of you. What's one thing our listeners should do in the new year? Alison. Do you know what? I, I'm sure a lot of you will be predicting that I'm probably going to say get started on threads, but I'm not. I'm actually going to say go and look at your LinkedIn profile, Will, and check it's completely up to date because LinkedIn is going to be such a power player and already is a power player next year and if that's just one thing that everybody does it just ensures that their LinkedIn profile is completely up to date you know it's looking slick ready for 2024 that's something that I would recommend doing. Carl? Yeah, in Google Ads check or change history over the past 14 days because what did you you know because we're always doing stuff and over Christmas we're going to forget the things that we did and tinkered with and It'll probably break our campaigns. So check your change history and remind yourself what you did for the past 14 days over Christmas. Brian. Just just remove yourself from 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 being a digital marketer for now and just look at the platforms themselves. Just use them for everything. And if they're clunky and they don't work, it doesn't matter. It's just getting it's the same as the early days of of of, of mobile and the internet. The people who just became familiar with using these things all the time just generally got better at them and became better at their job. And, and, and an example is we've probably got four years to do this as marketers because everybody that's in any university right now is using ChatGPT or Claude to, to as they're doing their degree. So that you've got this workforce that's about to join the workforce in about four years who will all be the equivalent we call Gen Z as being digital native. And I remember when we were millennials and we were digital natives, but but they're going to be an AI generation coming. So use it for absolutely everything. If you can't get access to ChatGPT 4, it doesn't matter. The prompting process for GPT 3.5 is going to be the same. Yeah. Look at Claude 2. It's actually better than GPT 4 for a lot of yes. stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just use the models as much as you possibly can. That's kind of the only thing I can really... Probably, I mean, Christmas is a good time to play. You know, Christmas is a good time. You're off work. It's a good time to just play with these things, isn't it? And just get stuck in and spend a bit of spare time mucking around with Pika, Midjourney, ChatGPT, Claude, and all the rest, you know? And be a consumer, right? Because this this, is the thing that's going to drive the changes. The consumer behavior is rapidly going to change because of these platforms. Be the consumer, and then you understand the change. Thanks, Brian. Okay, next up, we have my chat with Morgan Cummins, a Dublin-based recruiter and career coach working with professionals at the world's biggest technology companies there. I asked him what the next year is likely to bring in terms of digital marketing careers. Now, we'll be having a longer chat with Morgan in the new year, so watch out for that. But for now, here's his take on the current outlook. It's not the candidate-driven market it was even last year. About November, October time last year in in our market in Dublin, that's when the tech companies started making unfortunate uh, redundancies and 
there's been a trickle effect of those redundancies for the last nine months. So it, it spread this nervousness across organizations and the wider economy, even though we're at full employment, there's still a massive skill shortage, especially in digital marketing. However, what we're, we're seeing is that the finance uh, heads are, are getting closer to the budgets and putting a tighter uh, grip on those budgets and not rehiring as quickly. I'm consistently hearing of companies going, we lost three people this year, we haven't replaced them. And if you're a candidate, sometimes you don't know those macros well. And that I think is really important to know that year on year, it's down 40% on roles advertised in marketing. And if you think about 40% less jobs advertised year on year and a wave of redundancies that's been continuous for nine months, you can be looking at up to 900 applications on one job because you can see the stats on LinkedIn. And what's happening, and it's no disrespect to those hiring teams on the other side, is they're either using AI to find their best candidates, and there's still a lot of gremlins in that AI system, and CVs aren't even, uh, some CVs are saved as pictures, so they're not even, they're, they're being filtered out. Uh, or you've got a really overworked HR team that are literally finding, they're going through, they're starting with 900 and they're getting to 50 and they're finding five or 10 good profiles and everyone else is unfortunately not getting contacted. So you've got to give yourself a break. That's first and foremost, um, that that's the dynamic of the market. However, I am hearing great success stories of people getting jobs, but if you want to go into why, but they're outworking that, that competition. So what can I do to improve my chances of actually getting that interview and then doing well in it? Yeah, I think you need to first and foremost reframe what your perception of networking is. Networking is simply people helping people. And I think a lot of people get stuck on, oh, I haven't asked this person, I haven't spoken to this person for years. What are they going to think if I reach out to them now? You've got to move beyond that mindset and actually say to yourself, what could I give this person right now as, as something to help them? And that can be simply reaching out and, and explaining to them that, you know, you, you've been really impressed with their career. There's a couple of things that they've done in their career that's really impressed you. Um, you could share some insights around what you've uh, been doing in your career and call out specifically what, what you want from them. Like just a simple ask, like a simple, uh, I'm, I'm a bit stuck in my career or I'm looking to move from a marketing director role to a CMO role. I'd love to learn how you did it. So just a specific, would you have 20 minutes to explain that to me? So, so I think having the courage to do that, the, if you step that back one though, I, I think we're not leveraging our networks enough if you were to get out a whiteboard and write down five names of people you worked with in your career that you felt that you've helped, and now's the time for them to pay it back to you, it would be really interesting exercise to see where those five people are, who they know, and again, having the courage to reach, reach out to those people. Um, and then the third thing, which people, I still don't 
believe they don't do is they don't really have a clear picture of where they want to go next. So they they haven't actually painted a big vision for themselves or even a goal of where they want to get to. Because I actually believe if you can find out or work out what it is you want to do next and then put some time into looking at people who've done it and, and again, try and approach those people, not with an ask of, can you give me a job, but can you help me uh, uh, what, tell me what my learning gaps are? And a lot of this will then will come back to the kind of critical skills I see now, especially in the area of marketing that's, that's been asked for from my clients. It's funny though, you know, reaching out to people like that is just so against our social norms in most cultures, I think anyway, you know, we're so worried about looking weird, desperate, cringe. And yet when people actually do it and they do reach out, they, they do actually generally get a response because the recipient's usually quite flattered um, that they were asked. Twice in this last few weeks, I've had people do similar to me. I had someone that is interested in getting into the career coaching space and I was I was flattered, but it, so they did get me at a low, but I was actually then really impressed that this person had that, had that actually had the nerve to do it. Like, and uh, we've met, we'd had, we've had coffee and like, I got some greatness from it as well. I, I actually walked away energized that I had helped this person. So I do believe there, there's really good people. But what I would say is, it's tough. Why don't if some if if you feel you can't do it on your own, find an accountability partner. Like find someone that you could that you know, we often talk about mentors, but you could just find someone that's going through this as well themselves and arrange to meet them once a week for a cup of coffee and then share what your your job searching goals are for for the month ahead and hold each other accountable. And then WhatsApp's a great way to go celebrate your wins in it. Um I've always had two or three accountability partners to help me reach goals. So I, sh I think it should be no different. And I often speak about this 95% of job seekers over here who are doing the same thing they did yesterday and expecting a different result. I mean, but and there's 95% people doing that, applying for the wrong jobs, getting their hopes up, getting rejection after rejection. And as we mentioned off camera, they're whole energies levels of, are getting depleted. And if they do get that magic interview, they're coming up against other people that have probably been headhunted and their energy levels aren't uh, at rock bottom. So get yourself into the 5% of doing things differently, like doing the, the lists of companies and people you want to attract, um, getting out and trying to meet them, get an accountability partner. If you can afford to get a good coach, you know, there is about 5% and, and what's beautiful is every time I meet someone, I see someone on LinkedIn get a new job, I will reach out to them if I know them and say, hey, can, I, can you share five minutes and tell me how this happened? And nine times out of 10, it's through this approach that I've just, so it's, it's not like I've invented this. I was um, given this tool eight years ago myself by an amazing uh, recruiter, but it's 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 strange that so few people will trust in this process. And what can digital marketers specifically do to stand out in the job marketplace today? I, I think this is a brilliant time to be a digital marketer. Everything we've set aside, um, the three most important 
skills, I believe, and I've quantified this with, a, with quite a few different CMOs in the, in the Irish marketplace needed to get ahead in, in, in the wider marketing industry is, is one, really understanding all of these new distribution routes to market via an Amazon, via digital media in store. There is like, I can see it in the States. I can see the, you know, when 10 years ago, a PPC specialist in Google was the, the hottest thing. Now it's an Amazon paid specialist, but it's gone beyond that a bit now. It's, it's, there are so many different routes to market for your product, especially in the e-commerce space. And it's having those understanding, standing of that, having international experience. So if you're coming to a market like the UK or Ireland, I believe if you've come from the States or a, a bigger market or Australia, it's a bit more advanced still. So that's another key skill. The next thing though, that really gets you a seat up at that, I suppose, senior boardroom table is then proper understanding of marketing effectiveness. So in the past, digital marketeers had a bit of a steer because the big TV ads couldn't really be measured. Um, and digital marketing can be measured right down to the last cent, but now it's actually bringing all the channels together. Um, and some brands like the A Insurance do it really well in the UK, and there's some great case studies around that. But I know from speaking to senior CMOs that ha having that really good understanding of marketing effectiveness is critical. And then the third skill, which kind of speaks to what you need anyway when looking for a job is communication, interviewing, being succinct with knowing what your strengths are and, and being able to communicate. So as I said, if, if, if you're, and I know a lot of people are uh, introverted, but if you can't get passionate about your subject matter, if it is new routes to market or it is marketing effectiveness, you won't be able to communicate that to your board. And, and that's the new norm now that, you know, marketing used to be seen as a little bit of a fluffy thing. But what's brilliant, what I love about digital, what digital has brought to it is this, this effectiveness and measurement. So becoming uh, more upskilled in those areas, I think, will, will, be, will be continuing to be critical. Well, a great way to showcase your own digital skills is, of course, to build a personal brand, right? Somewhere like LinkedIn or an email newsletter. But most people just aren't naturals at doing that. I mean, do you think that it, is crucial to build a personal brand to stand out? Well, it, it's funny, the minute you said this, and I, I don't know if I could name check this guy, but there is a guy in the Irish market and I, I better not name check him. Um, I'd love to, because what he's done is just so simple. Like he has, he for the last five years has simply posted about an area of digital marketing he's passionate about. And I know from doing that myself on LinkedIn, I did it to help learn about areas I was passionate about. So he was actually servicing, or servicing a couple of objectives there. He was raising awareness of himself within his industry, but he was consistently learning. And he, like anything, he probably started off a, a year with getting very little engagement, but he has now gone on to a global uh, digital director role with a, a global brand in this country, which is phenomenal. And I know in no so small part, all of that posting he did, all of those um, articles he wrote about his passion. So that's what I would say to especially someone that might be a bit introverted is you don't have to be like, 
some sort of in, the next influencer on on a on a on a social channel. But if you were just to find an area of your craft that you are passionate about and just speak to that, that's like I can I can chart it with this individual and others. That's what's setting them apart. Like as a, as an executive recruiter, when I put that hat on, he is always in my mindset when I'm thinking about someone for a really senior role as well. Well, I suppose it's about not trying to be something you're not, but in fact, just really leaning in, doubling down on what you're good at, what really interests you, what you're into, and just being the person in that niche, right? I still think to get you up to the top of your game in your business, there's more than ever, there is a call for specialism. And it, it's about, like, as I said, this new routes to market, that could be your specialism while you're building other capability. But as we live in this volatile VUCA world, I think, as you said there, tr- identifying an area that actually you enjoy working on. And then if you're in a job trying to get more projects related to that, uh, and if you're out of work, just continuously learning about it. And I've seen people get on the speaker circuit globally on things like retail media as a result who were made redundant during the pandemic. So it isn't beyond the realms of, of, of possibility. I think what it all stems back to is the thirst for learning. I, I can really tell you, well, every time I speak to someone who's invested in their own self-development, some good has come from it. It doesn't matter if it's like an upskilling course in returning to the workforce or even like, you know, life arts or drawing or, you know, learning a new language. But any investment in yourself opens your mind, opens your network, and it makes you a more interesting person to be around and which draws more opportunities to you. Thanks, Morgan. Very valuable information for anyone in a digital marketing career there. Well, it is nearly time to hang up our microphone and call it a year. And what a year it's been. But we have one last guest to hear from. And it is, of course, Ken Fitzpatrick, the CEO of the Digital Marketing Institute. I asked Ken, what are the big trends he sees coming over the next year? Yeah, so in a radical original suggestion of mine, I would say that AI is going to be number one topic on people's lips for it already has been and it will continue to be so just because it's so overwhelming for people with the amount of change that's happening. So I think, you know, people are going to use the tools of AI and media planning, optimization, content generation in planning itself, in reporting, all sorts of ways. But I spoke to somebody last week and I thought that they said two things that are really useful. Um, The first is most companies don't have a pretty clear AI strategy. And it's it's a good place to start to think about how are we going to use this? Are we going to enhance what we have? Are we going to entirely change the way we offer things? What, what is the best use for AI in our company? And related to that, the second thing he said, which I thought was very insightful, was the marketing department and the marketeers have the opportunity to own it because nobody really owns AI in the company at the moment. And it's a great opportunity, particularly for marketers, to say, do you know what? I'm going to grasp this. I'm going to be the person who helps set the strategy, who decides what we're going to do, how we're going to use it best. And I think that's, 
if you could focus on developing a strategy and maybe driving it from the marketing team, that would be a, a very good thing to focus on in 2024. I like that. I do meet people who fear AI, but clearly it does in fact present an opportunity, doesn't it, to us in marketing to lead on something big and important. Do you remember how long ago was it now, Will, when everybody's annual report had that internet strategy way back in the day? Uh, everybody put the word E in front of everything that they did. Um, it sort of feels like a, a big moment now uh, with AI. It sort of feels similar um, in the sense of scale. And um, and I think if you can uh, lead that charge, it'll be it'll be a big benefit to people professionally, but also for their businesses. Yep. Okay. Good. That's a, that's a good take on that. What else do you see coming down the line? Well, related to that, I think again, not necessarily new, but increasing importance on data privacy. Um, and it it's it's important to customers. They care about it what our company is going to do with my data. And I don't really mean from a compliance point of view, yeah, you've got to have your, your house in order, but actually you've got to decide how you want to use customers' data. And if you can be open and honest about that with customers and explain what you're doing and why you're doing it, I think there's, a, there's a, again, maybe an opportunity for companies to steal a march to be very transparent in, in, in how they're using it. But it's, it's going to become more and more important um, in the future uh, because people really, really care about it. And it's in the news on a regular basis. There's been many mishaps with, with data and how people use data and it's not going away anytime soon. There's a tension there though, isn't there? Because on the one hand, we can analyse customer data, we can really personalise our marketing and do that at scale. But on the other hand, we need to be transparent about how we use data, Right so it doesn't feel creepy or invasive. I suppose the only answer can ever be that more transparency can only be a good thing there, right? I mean, look, everybody knows that stuff has been picked up in the background when you're using websites and so on. I think if you say to people, look, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're putting these two things together. That's why I think it might be an opportunity. People go, okay, look, this is a trade-off. Uh, for what I'm getting for you as a company, from you as a company. So you're right. It's just it's it's about transparency. There is a, a bit of a conflict, uh, but if you're open and honest, I think you can you can make a merit of that. Okay. So what else do you see on the horizon? One more thing that I I see is particularly with Gen Z millennials groups is. It's more than just about price and quality from a company's offerings now. Um, that's still crucial and the most important. But data, what you do with my data is factored into their decision-making in terms of purchase now. What are you doing on sustainability? What's your company values? They matter far more now than maybe they did in the past. And I think that's something companies... And people need to keep in mind next year is that you're being judged on much more than just your product and your price and your quality. Um, and particularly with uh, groups at the younger end of, of the of the purchase scale. Yeah, like what am I supporting here, you know, by spending my money with you? Yeah, and, and sustainability as one of those things is increasingly coming to prominence in people's decision-making. What does this company do 
in terms of sustainability? What's their strategy? Uh, I don't want to be supporting a company that's doing bad things to the environment, um, no matter how much I want their product. You know, it, it does factor into the equation now. Well, it's definitely an equation. However conscious you are as a shopper, you probably still buy from Amazon because of price, choice, convenience, even though you've heard that they don't treat their warehouse workers very well. And we weigh all those things up when making our buying decisions, don't we? That's a really good way of saying it because everybody makes trade-offs in every decision that they're making as customers. So there is an equation involved and you may compromise one thing to get another uh, uh, and so on. But I just think that when companies are are planning, they need to be part of their thinking. That's, you know, it's things like sustainability, things like their values and what and what they stand for. It's not something you can just relegate to not being thought about. And while customers still may make that equational choice that you talked about, if you ignore those areas completely, I think you're at a competitive disadvantage. I think that's the that's the key thing to remember. Very interesting and food for thought there, Ken. Thanks as always. Well, that's it for this year. A big thanks to our listeners. Whether you've been with us since the beginning or just started listening, it's really, really great to have you here. And I do hope that the podcast helps you think about digital marketing in new and deeper ways. It certainly does that for me, just because of all the amazing people that we speak to. If you do get value from it, the best way to support our show is simply just to tell a friend or share it on LinkedIn so that more people can get value from it. That is our one goal with this podcast is just for as many digital marketers to get value from it as possible. Well, thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the new year.